You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. This is a special edition of Lighthearted, being recorded on April 3rd, 2020. From the time it was founded in 1984, the United States Lighthouse Society has maintained an archive of lighthouse data, including photos, documents, and many other items pertaining to lighthouses, lightships, and related subjects. Starting in 2016, J. Candace Clifford, the Society's historian, and Tom Tagg, the Society's technical advisor, began researching ways of making the archive more easily accessible to the public. It was eventually decided that a database would be created where the archive data could be stored and accessed online by the public. That database is now on the U.S. Lighthouse Society's website as the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog. It was named in honor of Ms. Clifford, who is one of the country's leading lighthouse historians and researchers. She passed away at the young age of 57 in August 2018. The research catalog is an ongoing project that will be further improved and expanded over the coming years as more information is added. You can access it online at archives.uslhs.org. Among the major components of the Lighthouse Research Catalog is the Lighthouse-related collection of the National Archives. Many of the photos and other items from the National Archives have been added to the Society's research catalog. The National Archives and Records Administration is the primary repository in our country for lighthouse records. Established in 1934 by President Franklin Roosevelt, the National Archives collects and preserves records of the U.S. federal government that are deemed important for legal or historical reasons. The holdings are organized according to federal agencies. Records Group 26 covers the U.S. Coast Guard and its predecessor agencies, the U.S. Lighthouse Service, the U.S. Lifesaving Service, the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service, and the Steamboat Inspection Service. The interview for this special edition is Jack Del Nunzio. Jack is 22 years old and a full-time Master of Arts student in public history. He currently lives just outside of Baltimore. He has several part-time jobs. He's a graduate ambassador at American University in Washington, D.C., a digital editor with the journal Law and History Review, and a CrossFit coach. He's also been a researcher and cataloger for the U.S. Lighthouse Society since February 2019, and that's largely what I spoke with him about. Let's listen to my conversation with Jack now. I am speaking on the phone with Jack Del Nunzio. Jack, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. It's my pleasure. How are things down in the Chesapeake region in this age of social distancing? Yeah, you know, um, I live in uh, a suburb outside of Baltimore. Um, So many things have changed, certainly. But comparatively, you know, where I live, people are already social distanced, I would say, for the most part, um, in terms of their living situations. Most of us live on multi-acre plots. Neighborhoods are pretty spread out in terms of um, where we're positioned. But, you know, like everybody else, we're staying at home. I should say most everybody else, we're staying at home. Only going outside and going 
uh, to the grocery store and such when it's absolutely necessary. Now, where I go to school in D.C., very, very different situation. You know, the streets, the last time I was in D.C., which, and this is weird to, to say out loud even, was probably about a month. Um, normally, I'm, I'm commuting there from um, my home three to four days a week. So I haven't done that for about a month. And so, yeah, you know, in some ways, um, where, where I'm located, I, I, I would say I'm privileged um, in that I'm sort of used to a quiet environment. It's that suburban living, sort of rural living. But um, definitely in some of our urban centers, things have changed significantly. And it's very, very odd. Uh, hard to find a routine uh, considering that a good portion of my time was dedicated to, like I said, driving down to D.C., spending time there for classes and interacting uh, with people at the National Archives. So, you know, a lot has changed, but things things are going well, I think, comparatively. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's uh, strange times we live in for sure. One thing I was wondering yeah. about, you're a CrossFit coach. Are, have you been able to do any CrossFit training by Skype or uh, some other kind of yeah. uh, video type thing lately? Yeah, that's yeah. a great question. Yeah, so um, it was about two weeks ago now um, that places like restaurants had to convert to carry out uh, drive-in only in Maryland. And then that same time, gyms were closed for the foreseeable future. So we kind of quickly mobilized as a coaching staff. We have a, we have a, um, our, our gym isn't exactly the same as like a, a typical, um, I guess, Globo type gym. Like we're not like a merit or like a planet fitness. We're a smaller space. Um, we have more intimate class sizes, generally 10 to 15 people or so at a time. Um, and we have a small staff. It's under 10 of us um, that, that do coaching. So we kind of were, we're, we're also sort of privileged in that way that we have a relatively small staff, you know, less than 300 or so members. So um, we kind of came up with a plan and we were actually able to convert a lot of our classes to uh, Zoom meetings. So mm -hmm. the coaches will coach classes at home. Um, we sort of adapted a lot of the, you know, typically at the gym, we have access to equipment, whether that be a barbell or different implements we use for weights. Um, we sort of adapted everything we're doing with um, those members that are able to join us over Zoom so that they don't need any equipment. Um, so just using our bodies to just move. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's nice, you know, it keeps us connected, um, but it still allows people to get a little bit of a sweat in, clear their minds a little bit. And that really helps people, I think, especially during very stressful, high anxiety times like this. Yes. Well, as challenging as things are, you know, we're lucky that at least we have things like, like that, like uh, Zoom and Skype uh, sure. that are, are oh, absolutely. keeping us going in these days. So uh, we could we could certainly keep talking about, uh, you know, uh, the things we're talking about, the, the challenges of uh, these, uh, these trying times. But uh, yeah. if we could shift gears a little bit and talk about the... Uh, the, the U.S. LHS's uh, research catalog and about the National Archives uh, work that you're doing. First of all, you uh, have been helping with the, uh, the research and the development of the U.S. Lighthouse Society's research catalog for a while now. You, mm -hmm. I believe that started in early 2019. Is that, is that about right? Correct. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit, of, a little bit more about your background and how you got involved with uh, that project, with the USLHS? Sure thing, yeah. Uh, so I actually started kind of developing an interest 
for archival work during my undergraduate career. Um, I did an internship with the National Archives, working with some of their crowdsourcing platforms. So they have this platform called the History Hub. Um, and essentially what they're trying to do with that is they have thousands of documents, as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, that they are trying to digitize at the National Archives. Um, variety of different documents, whether we're talking about lighthouse-related documents, military records, government correspondences, laws, bills, so on and so forth. Anything you can really think of related to government is at the National Archives. What they're trying to do is encourage people that might have a little bit of extra time on their hands to look through these documents to help the National Archives transcribe them, um, tag them so that we can do keyword searches, um, so on and so forth. So I helped with um, sort of their digital presence in that respect while I was an undergraduate student. And one of my professors who actually linked me first to that internship um, suggested to me that he had seen something about a, a research cataloging position that had come up with a, a small nonprofit. It would be mostly digital work. Um, called the United States Lighthouse Society. So I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And, you know, I'm one of those people, I have many different interests um, when it comes to history. And I have certainly never done any kind of maritime lighthouse-related research, um, had not been a forte of mine in the past. So I was like, you know what, it might be really interesting to sort of broaden my horizons and, and get to learn about something that I haven't really studied as an as a, uh, emerging historian at that point. So I applied for the position, um, and I ended up training under Benjamin Shields, who at that point was a student at Catholic University. Um, he has since moved on um, to, I believe, a job with the Library of Congress. Um, but I trained under him, and I trained under Jeff Gales, um, the executive director with the United States Lighthouse Society, um, starting in February. So that's kind of how I got there. Mm-hmm. And what sorts of research and, and projects have you done since you got involved with the society? You know, my work has been kind of twofold with the Lighthouse Society. There's been first an sort of research side of things, right? And I like to think of that as kind of like my investigative work. So this is client-based work largely. So there will be lighthouse preservation sites throughout the country. Um, for example, Hesed Ahead um, out in, in Oregon as we know, many lighthouses have been converted either into historical sites, museums, some of them into bed and breakfast. Um, in this case, Hesed Ahead was converted into a bed and breakfast. Um, and they were trying to sort of put together a little exhibition, sort of like a, a little mini museum in their space. And so they contacted the Lighthouse Society and what they were looking for were sort of like out of the ordinary events that had happened um, throughout Hesed Ahead's history. Um, and the way we sort of look for the daily occurrences of what was happening at these lighthouse sites are through the logbooks. Um, and those are all housed at the National Archives. So what I did for um, the good people at Hesed Ahead was I was looking through the logbooks, about 15 years worth, um, and essentially just scanning through the daily activity logs, these assistant keepers or the, um, the primary keepers of the lighthouses would be responsible for recording the weather on a daily basis, um, jotting down any unusual events that happened. They would record, you know, all of the different implements they were cleaning, um, those sorts of things. And so every once in a while, you would see in the activity log, something unusual happened. There was a fire on out in the, uh, the oil, the boiler room, or somebody needed to be rescued. And so we sent a crew out into the, whether it was on a body of water, a river, 
or perhaps out into the ocean, we sent a rescue crew. There were a couple instances where somebody gave birth nearby and they had to, to assist with that. Um, so just various, you know, investigative type research things that I've, that I've done sort of is, is one aspect of my work. Another instance I can remember, um, Talos Point Lighthouse out in Michigan. Yeah. Um, some of their researchers were interested in figuring out when the Fresno lens was replaced. They had done their own independent research. They hadn't been able to really find a solution as to when the lens had been replaced. And this is one of those projects, unfortunately, that I was not able to find an answer either. Um, I looked through correspondences between the Lighthouse Bureau, um, the Coast Guard, and then Talos Point Lighthouse itself. And there was mention of various different equipment replacements, but never any mention of the Fresno lens itself being replaced. So still kind of a mystery. But those are just two examples of like investigative research type work that I do. So client-based type work mm -hmm. is, is sort of one aspect. And then the other aspect related to the, to the Lighthouse Research Catalog, I see is kind of like the public history side of work. So more of, of the, you know, getting our records um, into the hands of the public. So right now I'm working with you um, on a tutorial video for the catalog um, that we hope will allow people who are searching through the catalog to have a, a sort of a, a easier, more streamlined process um, so that they know how to approach searching, how they, so that they're able to sort of understand how to access um, various files that they might find on the catalog. And then also I've done work with Jeff for the uh, quarterly newsletter that the Lighthouse Society releases, the Keeper's Log, mm -hmm. um, developed an article there. So yeah, you know, generally, I, like I said, I see it as, as kind of, I have two different sort of roles, the investigative side of things, and then more of the front-facing um, interactions with the public um, in terms of getting our resources to them. Right. And I understand you're, you're doing a project related to the site plans and deeds as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, another sort of interesting thing I should mention is that, um, and I didn't even know this until I started doing work for um, the National Archives and then later for the Lighthouse Society. Um, there are, you know, there are two different National Archives sites. There's the one in downtown Washington, D.C., um, and they have textual records for the most part. So things like um, deeds for lighthouses or those correspondences I was talking about or the logbooks I was discussing. So things that are based in text. There's another National Archives location um, called A2. So A1 is the downtown location. A2 is located um, nearby College Park where the University of Maryland is. And they hold um, picture-related resources. So anything like architectural plans for lighthouses or photographs of various lighthouse sites are housed there in a separate facility. Um, so yeah, another project I'm working on is going to be kind of me going back and forth between those two buildings, trying to compile some site maps and deeds for these lighthouses and also photographs for these lighthouses um, as we populate the, the research catalog. Um, and that's kind of, a, as you know, it's certainly an ongoing process that we're working on every day. Sure. Let's talk a, a little bit generally about the, the lighthouse-related holdings of the National Archives at those, those two sites you mm -hmm. just mentioned. Obviously, it's a huge volume of material. I don't know, you know, yeah. in terms of 
cubic feet or whatever, how much we're talking about, but it's just absolutely enormous. A, yeah. a lot of it is available to the public online on the National Archives website. Uh, I don't know what mm -hmm. percentage, but a lot of it is on there. More and more of it is being uh, integrated with the uh, U.S. Lighthouse Society's research catalog. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, there's still a lot of lighthouse material at the National Archives that has not been digitized. I don't know if yeah. you, I I personally don't have a great sense of how much remains to be digitized. I know there's hundreds or thousands of logbooks at the National Archives that have not been digitized sure. yet. Do you? Yeah. Uh, how much of a sense do you have of how much material overall remains to be digitized, and also how actively is that being digitized at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. So my my understanding is approximately at this time, um, some of the archivists I've, I've spoken to who specialize in the maritime records, the lighthouse records, Coast Guard records um, at the National Archives, my understanding is that the textual records held at A1, um, anywhere from about 20 to 30 percent of those have been fully digitized on the National Archives catalog, meaning you can go do a search on the catalog, find the record that you're looking for, find a transcription. In other words, the, the text is right there on the webpage, and also look at the actual photo of the document itself. Mm -hmm. If I could interrupt uh, for a March, second, sorry. Absolutely. I just, when you just said when you do a search on the catalog, you're talking about the National Archives website, well, on, right? Correct. Yeah, yes. okay. Correct, yeah. The, yep, yeah, the National Archives has their own catalog that you can do a search through. Yeah, that's right. a great question. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, you know, the larger percentage, um, about 50% from my understanding, um, so now we're up to close to 70-80% of everything at A1, um, has been digitized partially, meaning there are, you can search for, let, let's say there's, there's a logbook from Hesseda Head, um, April of 1950. You can search for that logbook on the National Archives catalog, a search result will pop up for you. It will tell you where that is located at the National Archives and maybe a small portion of metadata about it. So it might tell you, here's the date that the logbook was recorded. Um, again, here's where you can find it. Here's who inputted this data, but you're not gonna get a transcription. Um, you're not gonna get a photo of the actual document itself. Um, and then another 20 or so percent um, of the various documents Lighthouse related have just not been touched yet mm -hmm. by digitization staff. So like I mentioned, certainly still an ongoing process in terms of digitization. Now when we migrate over to the A2 location in College Park where they have photographic, um, cartographic, architectural plans, very little of that has been digitized because a lot of it is very difficult to digitize. It's on long rolls of paper. Right. Um, digitizing those sorts of, of resources are very time-consuming and very expensive for the archives. And then going back to your second question, which is also a very excellent question um, in terms of the, you know, how productive is the archives um, being in terms of their digitization and how actively are they digitizing? Again, my understanding is that they don't exactly have a dedicated time frame in, in terms of when they're looking to complete 
the whole process of digitization. They have started the process of digitization, um, but there's not there's not a cohesive structure um, in terms of deadlines, those sorts of things. Those things are still sort of um, being figured out. And, you know, especially with this recent um, phenomenon that we're all going through COVID-19, this is going to be a setback, certainly for the archives, between funding and some of the work that they were doing. Um, and then the other thing that is also sort of a recent development is that there is sort of a veteran staff of archivists um, at A1 that are going to be retiring um, in the next year or so. One of my good friends at the, at the archives, Chris Killalay, he's going to be retiring, I believe, in August or September of this year. And so what they're trying to do is because such a large portion of some of these veteran archivists are retiring, um, they're trying to make sure that they train their staff adequately to have the same sort of knowledge. I mean, Chris has been dealing with maritime lighthouse-related records for the better part of the majority of his, of his uh, professional career, 20, 30 years plus. So there's a lot of sort of inherent knowledge that he has about these records, about where they might be. Um, I mean, there are some times I'm just amazed. I'll go in there and I'll say, I'm looking for logbooks for this state, for this year range, and without even taking a second to think, he knows exactly where it is. Um, so the, the, sort of the amount of knowledge he has just from the experience of working there for so long, um, it's, it's hard to replicate that. So a lot of their efforts that might otherwise be put into digitization are being put into ensuring that they have a, a good front-facing staff that can accommodate the public coming in on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and my understanding is they don't have a very large staff dedicated to digitization right now. So it's going to be it's going to be definitely an ongoing process for quite some time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm not surprised yeah. by, by, by that part of it at all. Of course, right. in, in addition to the two uh, main archive sites you, you're talking about, there there's also a lot of Lighthouse related material at the regional branches of the National Archives. Mm hmm. Uh, sure. I've done research at the regional branch in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts, and there's a, a lot there, yeah. especially uh, early lighthouse correspondence and other uh, imp really important uh, documents related to, to yeah. seven, 17th and 18th, uh, early 19th century lighthouse yeah. history. I believe some of that has been digitized and uh, sort of incorporated within the uh, the material that's available on online. I don't, I don't know how much of a sense, sense you have of how much of that has been, been done. Yeah, so uh, another great question. Um, the catalog, the National Archives catalog, um, is integrated with those, those regional sites. Um, so like you mentioned, let's say we're doing research out in Michigan or Massachusetts, somewhere where they have um, a regional location. Um, if I were to do a, a word search on the catalog, it might tell me you can only locate this logbook at that regional site. And those regional sites for the, for the archives are also doing their own digitization independent of what the main national archives in D.C. and College Park are doing. Um, so their process is going to be kind of dependent on how productive they've been and sort of whether they've dedicated um, staff to, to digitizations. Uh, at the end of the day, a lot of that comes down to funding, of course, um, as I'm sure you know. But yeah, so I, I would say each each regional location kind of has its own unique 
idiosyncrasies, unique circumstances. Um, but at the end of the day, they are integrated um, into the, the, the primary catalog for the National Archives. We're recording this on April 3rd. 2020. Mm-hmm. And as we touched on at the beginning of our conversation, these are very unusual times in our country and the world yeah. as we deal with the uh, the COVID-19 virus. And as part of the response, the museum and research facilities at the National Archives are closed until further notice. Mm-hmm. The website yeah. is up and running, so researchers can still do research on the website. But the closing of the National Archives is something that I think is very rare in its history. How are, mm-hmm. how are researchers like yourself and many others dealing with this, this shutdown? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. like you said, it's, it's unprecedented. It, it happens very, I, I can't think of a time. I, I actually had a conversation with Chris about this over email. Um, he can't recall a time that the archives have ever closed like this, and I certainly can't either. It's challenging. Um, but I, I do think that the resources are still there. Like you mentioned, the, the catalog is still up and running. Considering the unquantifiable um, amount of documents that are housed at the National Archives, a very you know, robust amount of, of resources are available online. I know from my work with the History Hub um, before, we, uh, before I started with the Lighthouse Society, they have um, online chat rooms, blog sites available where you can speak online directly with archivists. Now, I'm sure, without a doubt, that those sorts of services are probably um, being triaged right now um, in terms of whether they're you know, top-level importance to the functioning of the archives, and I'd imagine that they are being shut down. Um, at least for the for the time being, um, but it's it's very different because, like I mentioned, at least half of my work is investigative and for the most part requires me to physically go into the research room and be looking at these documents because if I was able to look at them online through the catalog, I would be doing that. I'd be sitting at my desk on my computer doing my work uh, in that in that setting, but. Uh, it does require me and, and a great deal of other researchers that I'm good friends with to actually be physically in the building pulling documents. And obviously, when the, when, the, when the archives are closed like this, it makes our job a little bit more challenging. And certainly, I know from speaking with uh, Chris and some of the ar- other archivists that they are being told, you know, we should really only be engaging in critical communications. So, they are essentially being told, unless it is some sort of emergency, um, that an organization needs something from the archives for a specific reason, uh, reason rather, you know, they really shouldn't be doing just regular research communications. So it's, it's changing uh, significantly the amount of work we can do as researchers and, you know, the, the quality of the output in terms of what we're able to do. But at the same time, I, I do think that there are some you know, opportunities here for us to sort of reflect as, as the historical community. Um, and this is sort of the work I'm interested in um, through my graduate studies is how can we sort of see this almost as a learning lesson in terms of how we can create digital virtual spaces that are just as useful to researchers, to the public as those physical spaces. And I think that's really some really important work that places like the archives with their national archives with their catalogs doing it's the good work that we're doing on the 
the uh, J. Candace Clifford um, Lighthouse Society catalog, trying to get these resources out there to the public in a place where even if something like this happens, they're still there, they're still accessible and still useful. So definitely challenging times, but work is being done to sort of mitigate the challenges. That's a good positive uh, outlook you have there on it, and uh, yeah. it's, it's great to hear. Uh, it is it is great work uh, you and, and others are, are doing. I, uh, by the way, just one more uh, note on the, the whole uh, COVID-19 uh, situation and everything. I saw that there was an alert on the, the National Archives website on March 20th that a researcher tested positive for the virus at the National Archives. Yes. Yeah. I did hear about that. I don't know the details, um, but mm-hmm. that was their intention, from my understanding, um, was until it was federally mandated um, by, by top government officials to, to close public buildings. My understanding was that they, their goal was to keep the research room open um, as long as possible because it is considered a, a primary function of the National Archives. They closed the museum. Um, so A1 is sort of a two-part building. It has a museum which has you know, um, documents of historical significance to the United States. There's the Constitution there, the Declaration of Independence for right. public viewing. And then they're sort of tucked into the, uh, the back corner away from the front-facing sort of tourist side of the National Archives is the research room um, where people like me go to do research. So their intention was to keep that research room open, um, even if they decided it would be necessary to close the museum. Because, you know, for for the most part, they get far less traffic into the research room compared to the museum. So it's a little bit easier to sort of regulate things. But yeah, um, as things sort of rapidly escalated and then it was uh, determined that somebody had, had tested positive that was in the research room. They really had no other choice. Uh-huh. So that's basically why why the research room was closed. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I want to congratulate you on everything you've accomplished. I, I, I don't want to uh, go into what I was doing when I was 22, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> let's not talk about that. But uh, since I'm, I'm uh, very involved myself with the J. Candace Clifford Research Catalog uh, for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, it is great to know we have someone like you who's so capable working on research uh, at the National Archives on our behalf. So I want to thank you for speaking with me today, Jack, and I want to uh, wish you all the best in the future, and I want to wish you all the best uh, navigating through these difficult times. I hope you uh, find lots of lighthouses to guide you through these these difficult times we're all dealing with. So so thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jack. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Jack Del Nunzio for today's interview. Again, to access the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog, go to archives.uslhs.org. I wish all the best to you and your families in these difficult times. Let's all be lighthouses for each other and help guide each other to safe harbor. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine.